Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming on WCEV1450.com. Now, for those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you will find us at Radio Islam USA. And be sure to take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or Google Play, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Okay, always happy to, uh, to be back with you. Uh, today, I am really pleased to uh, announce for you that our guest uh, joining us by phone is Um Zakia. Now, Um Zakia is the internationally acclaimed, award-winning author of the If I Should Speak trilogy and Reverencing the Wombs That Broke You. She has written more than 20 books, including novels, short stories, and self-help. Her books are used in high schools and universities in the United States and worldwide, and her work has been translated into multiple language languages. Her work has earned praise from writers, professors, and filmmakers, and her novel, uh, His Other Wife, is now a short film. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think you can kind of Google it, uh, Google it and, and see it uh, right online. So, we welcome Um Zakia. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Uh, you, and I, I gave such a truncated um, <laughs> Uh, representation of of your of your bio, um, you have written, I mean, extensively, extensively. You've written over over twenty twenty books. How? First of all, when did you start writing? When was your first book? My first book was officially published in two thousand one, but I was writing. I've been writing since I was a child. Just you know. Hmm. Okay, and you know what? And I have to I have to throw this. Um, this one uh, comment about you uh, that's on your site, and I just thought, like, wow, this is this is a really heavy, heavy uh, comment to, to ascribe to somebody. So Dr. Robert D. Crane, advisor to former U.S. President Nixon, says of Um Zakia, no amount of training can bring a person without superb natural talent to captivate the reader as she does and exert a permanent intellectual and emotional impact. I think that is, you know, subhanAllah, that, that is huge. Uh, and I, I think your answer was a, just kind of a perfect segue into that because you said you've been writing since you were a child. Yes. Okay. Yes, I've been writing. It's something I never really consciously thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a writer. It was something that is just who I was, you know. And so I have no memories of learning how to read or write. I just remember um, writing a lot and just loving to write and just expressing myself, writing stories. And writing poetry, writing thoughts, uh, you know, since I was since I was a child, and and I didn't publish any books yet, you know, when, until I was um, older. But I would like have different things published, like short stories and poetry and articles in you know local newspapers, college newspapers, different events and different things like that. And it was how I expressed myself. It was never something I sat down and thought, "Oh, guess what? Let me let me just try this out." Mm -hmm. You know, it was who I was, and it remains who I am. It's a part of who I am. Right. Now, in in the earlier days, uh, was there a particular train of thought that you followed with your writing? A uh, particular topic that you covered? I would say that when I look back at my writing when I was younger, a lot of my writing dealt with kind of like the different issues that are going on in the United States concerning African Americans and also Muslims and kind of navigating that and, and finding a voice in that and speaking up for myself. One of the things I would write about as a college student was my choice to be a practicing Muslim woman instead of, you know, this kind of oppressed person who needs someone to save her. Mm. So the, the common thing between both, whether it was on behalf of or in response to the social condition of African Americans, <clears throat> excuse me, or how you were perceived as a Muslim, um, was one of um, just advocacy or or just speaking on your own behalf. Absolutely, absolutely, because that has been something that's been very, very important to me, 
to speak on my own behalf because there is a lot of, or there was at that time, and there still remains to be to a, uh, to a large extent, this rhetoric that the Muslim woman needs to be saved. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, no, I don't need to be saved, <laughs> you know, not by any human being anyway. I need to be saved by my Lord. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, I don't need to be saved by a human being. I've made this choice to believe in my Creator. I've made my choice to dress the way, the way I do. I've made this choice to live a certain life. And for me, that's freedom. For me, that's liberation. And for me, that is the, the highest form of expression of my right as a female on this earth. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, when it comes to putting uh, pen to paper... Right. Well, that's that's kind of more of an old school saying. Right. Because most people don't really write longhand now. But when mm. it comes to, to writing, to expressing yourself in this particular uh, modality, uh, it, there's something that separates it from just the ability to verbally uh, articulate. Uh, and, and and writing is something because it has such permanence. Um, do you feel that when you write, do you feel that you are giving something that is going to that that is going to outlive you? Oh, yes. I'm definitely conscious of that, and that is one of the things that uh, actually keeps me from writing more, although I know I've written a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm very very careful about that. I pray istikhara. I make a prayer, you know, asking for Allah's guidance and God's guidance on whether this is good for my life and my soul, because I'm very conscious of the fact that Whatever I do write, it is a very, very high likelihood that this could outlive me. And because I know that, I'm conscious that I will be answerable to that, even as I am no longer on this earth. And I want to make sure that what I've left behind is of benefit for the most part, and for whatever errors and mistakes that are naturally there as a human being, that they will not be more than the good, and that I will be blessed and rewarded for the good that is there. Inshallah. So you're writing as a Muslim woman, um, and even though you're speaking for yourself, uh, there is also this, um, I guess, this natural tendency or, or occurrence that when one person speaks for themselves, they they tend to end up speaking for other people as well who see mm-hmm. themselves in those words. What 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 are some of the some of the feedback? Um, or, or reactions that you have received in the writings that you've done asserting your own, uh, giving your opinions and, and give, sharing your ideals uh, as a Muslim woman, from other Muslim women? Well, I would have to say that, you know, I get, um, well, I get feedback for both Muslims, from both, both Muslims and non-Muslims, and, and I would say the most inspirational or heartwarming to me is when Number one, someone actually becomes Muslim as a result of reading some of my work. And mm-hmm. then also, number two, when a Muslim feels inspired to uh, recommit themselves spiritually after reading uh, some of my work. I would say that is the most empowering. And some of the feedback that I hear is that it's as if, you know, I took what was in their heart and mind that they could not really find the words for, and I was able to make it very succinct to the point and heart-touching. SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. Well, I'm glad you also mentioned uh, non-Muslim women as well. Uh, and, and let me go, let me expand the circle a bit. Uh, do, uh, have, have men, and I'm curious in particular about non-Muslim men who tend to have, um, tend to take license when it comes to um, telling folks what their reality is. Um, mm. Uh, have you? What has been your experience with, with 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 men in this regard? In terms of my own writing? Sure, sure, yes. Oh yeah, I mean, I I get a lot of positive feedback from from men. You know, fortunately, and a bit. You know, one of the things I do find that men ask is, "Are you going to write a book for men?" And <laughs> okay. um, yes. I I always find that question um, very interesting because I would ask them. I said, "You know, I write books for people." Mm. You know, and (laughs) when there's a book that's a main character, for example, that's a male, women will read it and we can resonate with it, you know. And if there's a main character that's a female, we can, you know, it resonates with us also. And I would kind of turn it around and ask them, you know, why is it that when it's a female, you think it's not for you, but when, when it's a male, for us, we just resonate with the human aspect. And I would ask them, what is it about the female that doesn't allow you to connect to that human part of yourself? So, 
you know, and but I would say, but there are also men who 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 also, on the other hand, would say that they thought it was only for a woman, and then they would say, "Wow!" But when I read it, it was heart touching and moving, and 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 even I've seen this um, from different ages because sometimes when they're the the men are younger, mm-hmm. you know, they they tend to feel like, oh, you know, this is a girl's book, and then even I've heard even from some of the teenagers that, wow, you know, this really changed my view of novels, of reading, and even female characters and how we can all relate. So I've heard, like, in terms of the reactions, you know, both um, reactions, but I think for me the one that really sticks out to me is when there's that kind of idea that if it's a female as the main character, it's not for men. And I tend to challenge those men to kind of really dig deep and find out why do you believe that you cannot connect to the, a female character on a human level, and why do you think I need to switch it for a man? Even though I have books where they're, you know, I have like, for example, Hearts We Lost. This is the the main character is a man. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with that um, because you know I I try to tell the human story, the soul story, right. and I also have the book His Other Wife with one of the main characters is also a man. But you have a couple of main characters in there. But you know, I would say that it's been very positive. But I will say. Men are the only group that I experience that sort of question. You know, I, I think that's a re- a profound realization. Uh, I think in in terms of when we see or when we read uh, a story or when we see uh, a, a movie or whatever, and, and we see a a female lead, a woman lead, uh, and don't really see ourselves in that. And I think that is very much a mark of. I don't. I don't want to say it's just. It's just the the culture um, because. Hmm. Hmm. You know what? I, I'm very good at recognizing where my lines uh, are. So I I'm, I'm going to say that I don't have the expertise to speak on other cultures uh, and how they respond to uh, how how gender affects how they see themselves uh, in works of art, whether it be you know uh, literature or or, or whatever. Um, but I think here uh, in the U.S., gender is very much front and center. And I think, uh, let me ask this question. If you were to, if you were to see, ask somebody to pick a meme, right, uh, to represent their emotional state or how they feel, would it be more surprising for you that women could pick a male or female versus a man only feeling secure in picking a male as representation? That would not surprise me. I would say that we still have um, a long way to go, you know, even as Americans, as Muslims and Mm non-Muslims, to kind of see the female as a full human being that represents us, you know, and, you know, it's not. It's something I would say it's troubling, and I will say a lot of this issue is exacerbated in religious circles, and this is something that I find when I speak to traditionally uh, practicing Jewish or Christians, and they say the same thing, mm-hmm. um, or Jews and Christians, they, they say the same thing that happens in their own faith uh, communities, is that there's this idea that the the female, you know, is kind of like this kind of separate being that the man has to save, that the man has to speak for, that the man has to effectively control. And through that controlling, that's how she becomes the best of who she is. So I think that when you think like that, you tend to begin to think of that person as a child, mm-hmm. you know, or a person who's not fully developed as a human being. Right. And it's a, it happens on a subconscious level. And when that happens, when you're taught that, you know, this is a person that, that your entire job with dealing with them is to save them, to protect them, to actually make sure that they are not doing something to distract you from your purpose in life, which is a lot of the rhetoric around hijab, you know, the human part of that person is lost in the psyche of that human being. So therefore, naturally, when they, they choose something to, to express themselves, it would never occur to them that 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 voice of that non-human would be them because they see themselves as human, but they don't subconsciously see that other person as a human being, which is why, you know, there's a famous, you know, like saying people would say, you know, um, 
about how, like, when a man is mistreating a woman, mm-hmm. they're com- commonly asked, you know, what if that were, you know, your mother or if that was your sister or, 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 or um, your wife, would, would you treat her like that? And then, you know, and then there's kind of that response of that, you don't, you don't, you know, you shouldn't have to think of your mother or your sister, you know, or your wife before you treat a woman right. Just think of another human soul. Right. But that inability for many people to, for, for many men to kind of make that connection that this person, this human soul deserves to be honored because they are a human soul. And I don't have to connect that soul directly to an ownership of mine before I respect it. I think that's something that takes a lot of life and maturity for people to see because it's something that's been conditioned, you know, into them. And that's not to say that if someone begins to respect women because they think about their mother or their sister or their daughter, that that's a bad thing. I don't have that perspective. I think it's just a stepping stone that we have not yet reached the level of empathy and human connection that is uh, possible for that male soul. Because if you have to think of the woman in terms of the ownership of someone else or connection to another man before you can see her as a human, there's still something missing in terms of your perception of her full humanity. Yeah, and I would agree that there is a there are lots of challenges uh, when it comes to identifying as a as a human being uh, because there are so many there are so many different labels. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I'm sure by the end of the day we may have a new label out. Uh, they're just new boxes that just continue to, to we seem to be inundated with, uh, and they pull us away. It's just, you know, in my estimation, that they pull us away from this ability to see ourselves uh, in, in any type of a connective uh, uh, manner. So um, I think that there is definitely a, there's a challenge and there's a lot of deliberation that has to go into getting to the point where we can see ourselves um, in one another. I think that's kind of the... Uh, that would be. I think that's kind of the end end game that we're we're looking at, uh, inshallah. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and I think that if we just challenge ourselves, you know, and we all have things to work on, because I don't want to speak from a point of I have it all figured out. You know, mm-hmm. I think that life is a journey of 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 learning yourself, learning the world, being humble, embracing the challenge, embracing the lessons. And understanding you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the representation of perfection because all we're doing here is, you know, trying to find the best of our imperfections. So I don't even say that from a point of view of just criticizing all men because I think that when we're not able to be honest with our imperfections, we can't grow because we are sometimes in, in, sometimes in the activist circles, we sometimes unintentionally kind of, you know, make people feel kind of isolated if they have certain faults and just say, oh, you're the problem, you're a misogynist, you're this. I think that we're all struggling human beings with some form of brokenness, some form of ignorance, some form of need for growth, and that's the reality of every human being. It's just the breaking and the, and the imperfection is different in each soul, mm-hmm. and that's how I look at it. And if we can embrace that and understand that there's room to grow, there's room to heal, all of us have something to learn, male, female, young, old, you know, whatever category or whatever God has decreed of our reality at this point, we all have growing to do. So I want to clarify that when I make that, it's, it's more of a challenge to better, you know, themselves as men. But also I want to challenge us as women and us as human beings to realize that we should never speak and think from a point of arrogance right. when uh, Allah or God has blessed us with a certain insight and understanding because you know, it's like that saying, there for, uh, there but for the grace of uh, God go I. You know, it's, it's, yes. it's not about I know something and I'm so great. It's about if God has gifted you with something, you share that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I say often over and over again is that, you know, share, don't shame, educate, mm-hmm. don't humiliate, you mm-hmm. know. So we, 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 we're here to share, we're here to educate, and because all of us are pieces of a puzzle, and no one has all the pieces by themselves. Yes, yes. So let's talk about one of the, the genres that you write in. You know, you, you've, you've, you've written uh, self-help um, books. Yes. 
Now, this is something we're in a time now where we're not simply just looking at our our physical health, but we're looking at our emotional and mental well-being as well. And self-help, you know, this is a an area that there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of demand for us, a lot of consumption around it. Um, what was the first? What was your first self-help book, and what was the um, what was the what was the the angle? You know, how did you approach it? I think when I first started writing self-help, I didn't really realize that's what I was doing. <laughs> I think okay. I was kind of just trying to heal from whatever it is I was going through. And I think my first self-help was actually kind of an unconventional type self-help. It was actually a collection of some of my journal entries from different painful parts of my life, and it was called Pain. Mm. Um, and it is called Pain from the Journal of Umzakia. And it's actually just a collection of quotes of very difficult times and emotional and spiritual trials in my life. And, and, and some of those quotes are just where I was at that time, and then some of them were how I was struggling through that. And then I made, as, as I um, wrote more, I did make a conscious decision to write self-help as I kind of found my voice in that emotional and spiritual healing, and I have a book called I Almost Left Islam, How I Reclaimed My Faith. Mm. And that's one of my most read books. And um, and then I have another book, The Abuse of Forgiveness, you know, emotion. Um, basically, it's talking about how there's uh, harm and manipu- manipulation and harm in the name of emotional healing. And so when as I um, kind of went on this journey, it was really about my own healing, because when I felt like I could not be Muslim anymore, and when I felt like I was going to give up my faith and I was going through depression, I found absolutely nothing on this topic from the perspective of a Muslim struggling with this. Everything that I found was just really, you know, cut and paste about what's haram, what's, you know, what's, you know, people who are depressed don't have iman. Mm -hmm. Um, If if, if someone, you know, doubts their faith, then that shows they didn't really believe anyway. And they're really stupid, insensitive, (laughs) destructive type um, speech. There was no empathy whatsoever, and I was like, I'm just going to share my story, because bringing my, you know, crawling my way through that period was very, very, very difficult, and I said to myself, I would never, ever, ever want anyone to go through that period of their life and have absolutely nothing of a human empathy book to turn to while you're struggling with that, and you're still trying to hold on to your faith at the same time. We as Muslims are far, 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 far behind um, the, the non-Muslims in the United States of America in this, and, and it is absolutely shameful. It is absolutely shameful. And so for me, and and that that's not a diplomatic thing. I'm being very blunt with that. That is just, we are, we mm-hmm. should just hang our heads in shame. Yeah. Um, and so just wanting to actually bring that human voice, and also with a form of healing for me, because there's healing in the truth-telling. And I reached the point where I didn't care what people were going to say at that point. You know, I had been through so much. I had been down in the dump so far that I was just like, you know what? When you're on the ground, there's only that the only way forward is up and growth and movement, you know, that, that way. Or you stay down there, and I'm not willing to stay down here. So I'm going to share. So I, I think that for me, my first conscious self-help book was I almost uh, left Islam, How I Reclaimed My Faith. Okay, so I, I have to read that. Um, I'm, that's put, I'm putting that on my, on my reading list. Uh, I've, I'm almost done. The problem is I have, I'm reading multiple books at one time, and I need to stop doing that. Um, but uh, Leila Abdullah-Poulos, uh, who introduced me to your work, uh, she has been, you know, alhamdulillah, she's been just this wonderful portal to uh, a, a new, just many, many different authors. As a matter of fact, I'm not ashamed to say, I didn't even know that there was Muslim fiction, you know, prior to. Yeah, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, well, I mean. May Allah bless her for her work. May Allah bless her for her work. <laughs> I mean, because I'm, I'm a self-admitted, most of the reading that I do is, uh, is generally um, uh, nonfiction and um, historically, you know, uh, history, you know, things of, of that nature. But, um, but it's been wonderful to, to be able to, to, to find this. But with regard to this particular genre and the, the, the material that you're covering and it being so personal and so 
painful in, in certain areas. You said that, you know, I wasn't worried about what people were going to say. There was never a point. Was there any, aside from the reactions of other people, was there any, was there a particular difficulty in sharing these uh, painful and uncomfortable uh, periods in your writing? Absolutely. It was very, very painful. And I think that, that by the time, when I was saying by the time I wrote the book, Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm decided to release it. I didn't care. It was because I had gone through so much of the agony and the embarrassment and the humiliation and the wondering what people were going to think and my reputation. And it was very painful. And there are still parts of it that I kind of cringe. And I'm like, I actually wrote that, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, 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 it's not a comfortable space, you know, still till today. But I found... I would what I would call a comfort in that discomfort because it it opened me up to a form of humility in front of a law that I didn't experience with hiding in the shadows of perfection as which is what most Muslims are doing especially in the public realm. So yes. for me it was freeing it was it was hard it was very difficult and there's a lot of you know there are negative parts that come along with this because you do open yourself up to a certain type of criticism a certain type of uh, backlash a certain type of ostracizing but you know but at the same time it, it was it, it freed me it freed my soul to be very honest from having to feeling that pressure to walk in a shadow of an image that no one can uphold not even the people who claim to be upholding it oh yeah and, and i'll say this um I tell folks all the time that um, yeah, I'm happy to give the salams in the masjid, but that's really not the person I want to talk to. I want to talk to you outside of the masjid. Uh, and, and the reason being, in my experience, I've seen that quite a few folks have multiple faces. Oh, I shouldn't say it because that sounds kind of duplicitous, but um, there you know, are different ways we present ourselves. And, and in these spaces, a lot of times, we present ourselves, you know, we try to put, our, put on our best, um, you know, our best self. And, and, that's, and that's good. But if it's not who you are, right, you haven't worked your, your way up to this best self and this is who you are on a, on a consistent basis, then I'm really interested in talking to the person that you are on a regular basis. So um, with that, I want to ask, um, c- can we talk a little bit about that book in particular? You know, you said um, how I how I almost left my faith. Is that the title? Yeah, I, um, I almost left Islam. I almost left Islam, and because I know, and I'm sure that there are the folks that who are listening right now that also know people who have left if uh, have, have left if, if Islam. Um, what mm. was, and and that, and I think maybe to have something like this book. Uh, and just off the, the strength of the title and the, the, the um, your reputation, I assume that it is, it is nothing less than um, informative and, and inspiring. So what talk to us a, a bit about that. Well, I would say that this one is an introduction to um, this particular um, very difficult time period. It's actually, I also have a... Um, a video series that goes along with it that that's online and so i would suggest that anyone who wants to read it they also um watch um that video series but i would say that if i were to i would what i could do is i could share a couple of journal entries that i shared inside of the book okay. uh and just in a couple just a sentence so people can kind of get an idea of what's going on i what i did was i broke down in the book Ten of the things that were happening that made me feel like I could not be Muslim anymore, and how I responded to that. But I also, in later books and other books, I um, also went a little bit more into some of the things that were going on. Like, for example, in the abuse of forgiveness, I get into the emotional trauma that was happening during that period. Mm. And whereas for the how, you know, when I say I almost left Islam, I just kind of I'm, it's more focused. So it's kind of a book to get for people who, you know, are struggling or kind of trying to understand that struggle, because most people will reach a point where they're going to be in some sort of spiritual crisis. So I kept it short and um, and not as thorough as I um, 
I would have liked and I'll be adding to that hopefully. But I'll, I'll just read a couple of things. I, one of the journal entries that I share in the book is, Islam is submission, yes. But it is more than that. It is a relentless fight till death against oneself to save one's soul. Mm. Um, and then I also share something I realized during this period. I said that for some of us, the only way we'll get our spiritual priorities straight is, is having our entire world collapse until the only thing that allows us to stand is the bare minimum we need to survive, the pillars of life and faith. Then, and only then, will we truly understand la ilaha illallah and the necessity to leave everything else alone except what contradicts this. And so what, I, what I'm basically sharing is how I learned through this period, even though it was a very, very difficult period, mm-hmm. that we focus sometimes on trying to stay away from this and stay away from that and don't do this and don't do that. But I realized this, this, this breaking down of my life, what I've described sometimes and when I'm speaking to people about it, is that, you know, before that moment, you know, I, I, my parents had converted to Islam. I took my Shahada, you know, just following behind growing up in, in that um, in my home, mm-hmm. having Islam there. And so I taken my Shahada in my, on my tongue, but going through this and breaking down, you know, to this point forced my life. My life had to take Shahada. My, my, my entire being had to take Shahada, and that's what was happening during that time. And I, had, I was forced to face uh, the reality of what it means to believe in my Creator, minus what other people are saying, minus what this group says, minus what that group says, minus what, what every, because every Muslim claims that they're on the right path and everybody's off the path. Right. This is everybody's group. We have, whether people call themselves Sufi or Salafi or Shia, everybody has the same song. I'm right and you're wrong. You know, and so for me, what this, what this period brought to life is I'm, I'm, filtering out all of that, and I'm going back to what does my Lord want from me. I'm not interested in what someone's sheikh says. I'm not interested in what someone's imam says. I'm not interested. I'm going to take whatever good is there. I'm going to leave whatever I believe is mistaken, and I'm not asking for permission, and I'm not asking for forgiveness. Hmm. Alhamdulillah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation with Um Zakia. This is Radio Islam. We're on WCEV 1450 AM. Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, if you are just tuning in, be sure to follow, like our pages on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You'll find us at Radio Islam. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. Look for us at Radio Islam. Our guest Today is Um Zakia, a prolific author, has written over 20 books um, and a multi- multitude of, of, of subjects. Um, um Zakia, let me ask uh, this question. How important is, and, and your, your journal entry is actually still kind of swirling around in my head, um, how important is community and support system 
and and what do people do when they find themselves um, without without that support? I mean, it's crucial. I would say it's crucial. I mean, we can survive, you know, alone, but it's a very difficult survival. And when it, when we're forced to survive without the unity, without the support system, only a few will survive. Um, because that's just how we are created. We were not created as just little individuals scattered all over this earth. We are created as umma, and you know whether it's even we were created as there's the umma in the sense of the religious, spiritual umma, and there's the umma of the human family. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is is that we need each other. And the system that Allah has given us in the Quran, and that the system that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam has shown us, is one of unity, one of brotherhood one of supporting each other, one of guarding our tongues to say, you know, against saying harm, one of being a form of spiritual support. It is crucial, and that is something that I learned, and then I'm still learning it through my own trials. And I think that the bottom line is that what I realize is that for many people, we don't want unity. And I think that was part of the thing that really broke my heart when I was going through my own spiritual crisis and trying to find my way is that most of us are more interested in our sects and groups and and divisions than we are in uniting. And it's not to say that we can't have group, I mean, groupings and having different ideologies and different imams and sheikhs. This is a natural thing. Mm-hmm. But we don't use these things to say, okay, what is our common ground that we believe in la ilaha illallah? We use it as a form of my sheikh is better than your sheikh. My, my group is better than your group. Right. If you're not Salafi, then you're wrong. If you're not Sufi, you're wrong. If you're not Shia, then you're wrong. If you're, instead of focusing on concepts and principles. And if we're not focusing on concepts and principles, then the entire purpose of any imam or sheikh or group is lost because we can only benefit from our path in life if, we, if it's, it's founded in principles. And we should always be aiming for the truth and when we're aiming for the truth and right guidance, what that label is on that doesn't make any difference. You know, if I hear from someone who is a practice, uh, practices to sell wolf or Sufism, and they say something that's true, if I believe in Allah, I should be able to say that's the truth. Absolutely. If I hear something from a Salafi and they say something that's true, I should be able to say that's true. I shouldn't have to say, oh, who's your sheikh? Who's your imam? You know? Right, right. <laughs> but we are so lost. We are so disconnected from spiritual authenticity that the life of Islam, the soul of Islam, the soul of faith is lost. So unity is, is an impossibility in that environment because we don't care about each other. We don't even care about truth. All we care about is who's on my team, and if you're not on my team, then I'm not there for you. Let, let me ask this. When, when you first, in your early days of writing, you said that one of the things you wrote, you gave commentary, social commentary on uh, issues and conditions of the African-American community in particular. Uh, now, as you have, you know, as, as, as we matriculate through life uh, and, and we, we gain dif- different perspectives and take on different roles, uh, now in your writing, do you feel a responsibility also to, to critique in a, in a constructive manner, right? Because sometimes people hear critique and they don't, and I don't think you're one of those people, but I'm saying it for the benefit of the listening audience, um, but to also critique um, the, the, the community at large, the Ummah at large, uh, here and abroad, uh, with regards to areas that, you know, that we need to be mindful of. Do you feel a responsibility to make that a part of your, of your writing? Absolutely. Um, I have an entire book that deals with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it's, it's called Prejudice Bones in My Body, and the subtitle is Essays on Muslim Racism, Bigotry, and Spiritual Abuse. So, Wow. In this book, I deal with uh, I deal with some of the intra-Muslim racism, and I also deal with what I call glorified victimhood, which is actually so you're dealing with, for example, I have I deal with the issue of the intra-Muslim racism, which is what you find uh, largely worldwide, where in Muslim communities that are non-black, um, there's there's this institutionalized racism that is taught under the guise of the Sunnah of the Prophet and there's a cultural aspect that happens and that's passed down, and a lot of the rulings that we hear in Islam that have, even if they have validity to them, 
uh, they're kind of watered down or polluted, if you will, with, with racism. And a lot of them have to do with hairstyles, hip-hop culture, music, and a lot of these things. And not to take away the, the, the legitimate uh, scholarly disagreements on these particular issues, but through my studies, because I, you know, I traveled and I studied in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and America and, and um, different things. So I, I realized this kind of theme of anti-black racism that kind of affected um, a lot of the, the, the rulings. But at the same time, you know, Allah tells us in the Quran, you know, basically to stand up for justice, even if it's against your own self. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize in the African-American community a trend amongst some of us toward what I call glorified victimhood, which is what we take that victimhood that we, that we have been tested with, and instead of using it as a means to draw closer to a law, we use it as a means to create our own divisions and sex based on Afrocentrism to the point where it actually takes us outside of some of the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we're, we're okay with shirk, we're okay with sin, so long as we can say it originated in African spirituality or, or something of this nature. And so we take that, we use our victimhood as a form of glorifying wrongdoing and using that as an excuse to now wrong ourselves and create our own religion instead of taking that brave stance of standing upon truth. And what I'm talking about in this book is a call to all of us, mm. whether we're Pakistani, Arab, white, black, to check yourself, because when you go on that grave and those questions are asked of you, it's not going to be about your culture and, 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 and whether you descend it from the Prophet Sallallahu or whether or not you, you um, were, were, you know, from this, you know, African tribe or whether you embrace this, you're going to be asked, who is your Lord, what is your religion, who is your prophet? And if you're not answering those according to what Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala would have, then we're lost. So we need to be prepared for that. And so in this book, I'm critiquing that, and also as a form of self-check, and I say this in the book, you know, and I talk about some contemporary issues, including what happened at the uh, RIS uh, conference, dealing with the statements, the horrific statements of Hamza Yusuf, may Allah forgive him, mm -hmm. uh, against African Americans. And I deal with things like this. Um, but I also deal with the self-check, and I, I mentioned, you know, some of the struggles that we have as African Americans. And my whole goal in this self-check is to say, hey, we're all struggling here, and we all need to get ourselves together. We all need the mercy of the law. And if we keep pointing fingers at each other without checking ourselves, we can be right and wrong at the same time. Mm, mm. Very, very interesting. Do you think that there is a tendency when it comes uh, particularly towards, uh, towards African-Americans, there's a tendency to look at a, a withdrawal from, uh, from spaces where, where people may feel marginalized uh, and withdraw to spaces where, where you're not, um, that that is looked at um, possibly looked at um, in ways that make it seem that there is a, uh, a reluctance to be a part of the uh, greater community when in actuality it is this it's kind of a, um, a continual a continual marginalization. Um, do you think that that it's seen as that or it's 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 more of a you know not not really seeing the full picture? I think that what we struggle with, I think absolutely it can be seen as that. However, I want to differentiate between division and healing. Mm. There's a difference because I think when you are marginalized people, you need a safe space. Right. You need a safe space where you can heal and be, and be encouraged and, 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 and feel good about yourself. And sometimes that needs to happen in an exclusively or predominantly African-American space or, you know, for whoever it is, if it, if, and if it's Palestinians, for example, who's who dealing with whatever is happening in that particular region, they're going to need a space for themselves to heal that focuses on those specific wounds. And I think that from the outside looking in, that could be looked at as divisive, that can be looked at as someone trying to create their own religion, and that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about us glorify victim or I'm talking about, you know, principles and ideologies where you actually find people changing the beliefs of the religion oh, yeah, to yeah. fit mm -hmm. their ideology. But we need healing spaces. Right. And yes, they will be looked at a certain way. Usually African Americans are the ones who are criticized the most for having healing spaces, but everyone has them. And um 
the, yeah, people do look at those in that way. But when you have been marginalized, when you've been oppressed, and when you've been wounded, especially in the deep and, and transgenerational way that African Americans have and are continuing to today, you absolutely need those healing spaces, and they need to be spiritually nourishing, they need to be emotionally nourishing, and they need to be socially and politically nourishing so that we can be uplifted. And so there will inevitably be people who will look at that as some sort of problem or divisiveness, but usually that is from their own internal wounding and guilt that they get nervous, you know, to see that. Because when you know you've wronged someone and you see that person, you know, over in the corner talking to someone else, you, you, you think, you don't that, want that. hey, they must be doing something <laughs> against me. And this, this is a concept that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about in the Qur'an. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Surah Al-Manafiqun when he talks about how the hypocrites, you know, they think every cry and, and shout is against it's, them because yes. they're guilty inside. So, you know, that's for that person to heal from. You know, we see this with what's happening now with African-American, a lot of them speaking out. You know, every time African-Americans try to, in the most peaceful way to just give a nice little hint that there's some pain, you find this outrage amongst uh, the, in the racist um, wider society mm-hmm. because they're terrified of their own wounds and they don't realize that that's what's happening. It has absolutely nothing to do with someone taking a knee or anything like this. They right. just haven't you know, conquered those, you know, ghosts inside themselves that allows them to face themselves. Yeah, yeah. They, they definitely see that uh, for every move, there's another move. So they're looking down the line. Um, and if there's an acceptance of this expression of, of pain, then that means that there has to be some type of a, there has to be some type of a reparation or some type, some, some healing um, factor or, or event, something has to take place. And, and unfortunately, when we have those conversations, uh, there is the fear of loss um, on the other side. Right? And nobody is looking to take any L's when it comes to um, standing, material resources, uh, social mobility, any of those things. So it's much easier yes. to shut, shut all that yes, down absolutely. at the beginning. And, and that's true. And I think that happens, in, at the, and I believe that, just to be clear, that happens in any form of privilege, yeah. no matter how it is, whether that privilege, we see it on a wide scale, for example, with white privilege, mm-hmm. but it also happens on a lower scale with um, marital privilege. And I write about this, too, whereas one of the reasons that polygamy, for example, is so frowned upon and spoken out against is that there's a fear of loss, of privilege. In, in certain communities, and and what and this affects African Americans, immigrants, because we we enjoy a certain privilege, and an image, and we don't want to lose that. So if anyone brings a different type of family setup, you know that that threatens us. Even if it's not in our home, we fight against it, and we'll use religion, we'll use self-deception, we'll rationalize, we'll fixate on the evil that these wrong men are doing. And we actually think we have a point. But really what we're doing is we're just behaving very similar to any system of privilege. We have a privilege. We live in a country where um, God's definition of marriage is not embraced. Mm -hmm. So we kind of try to make up a lie about our faith and try to separate monogamy from polygamy and and say, like, oh, they're two different things when in Islam there's only marriage, you know. And so you find this privilege, and this is also something I, I write about, you know, is that it's not just white people. I think as we as African Americans, it feels really nice to be on that, you know, to, to be the victim sometimes, and we're able to point fingers, <laughs> but the reality is, is on the day of judgment, we're, we're going to have to answer for everything. So there's also that privilege, because that's, that's a privilege that I know for me, I, in my community growing up, and I, I enjoyed that privilege, and I had to challenge myself to say, well, why are you reacting this way, you know? And so there's that, and so I, I wanted, and that's another balance I try to throw in there and say, hey, check yourself. Why is it that every time this is brought up, you want to bring up all of the bad that's happened. And it's very similar to the white privilege ideology that every time black people need to want to speak just for their right to just live and breathe, they bring up all the bad stuff that black people have done. Have done. It's not about uh, um, what they think it's about. It's not about these black people doing bad. It's about I'm scared that if I allow these black people to live, I'm going to lose something. And it's similar with Muslims. If I allow people who are in polygamy or who, who believe in, in that option to speak out and to, to show that they're human beings too, I'm going to lose my privilege and my image in this world and my monogamous privilege. So it happens on all different levels. So I want to be clear about that. You sure. know. You know, and th- there's also when it comes to uh, polygyny, there's also the uh, th- there's a power dynamic that exists 
um, and in I should say the assumption uh, there is a power dynamic that exists uh, in in the marriage, and when you've seen it's like if you've seen a bad movie or a horror movie, you pretty much you know the formula uh, for them. Uh, or it doesn't even have to be a horror movie, but it, some things are kind of formulaic. And when you see things play out in front of you in the worst manner, then the narrative around them, the around that is going to be, it, it will be negative. And unfortunately, there are people who have had or who have witnessed um, polygyny being not being entered into uh, or exercised, I should say in responsible manners. But I, it was a, a brother I had a conversation, it was a, a social media conversation, uh, and a brother, he practices polygyny, and he said a very important point. He said, this is for grown folks. This is not for young people who are trying to sow their wild oats. And, uh, and of course, you know, I think we probably could have a very long, uh, <laughs> lengthy discussion on this. But he gave a different, uh, a different side to this. I, I, and I only mentioned the whole thing about the movie um, and, and th this kind of f uh, the formula or, or watching things unfold uh, the same way again and again. There are some people who have seen, who have seen examples that are not, that are not flattering. Um, and, and because of that, I think it's important to have other examples uh, where they are, where they, they, is, they are healthy uh, marriages. I think that's that's important. I mean, I myself, my wife, let me know up front when we got married 18 years ago. She said, that, you know, and the whole thing was, well, you can do it. Uh, you can have more than one. I just won't be one of them. Uh, and I had to. And that's you know, all right. I had yeah, to, yeah I, right. I respect yeah. it. And not. And I've never, you know, I mean, law says, you know, one is best for you if you if you if you've been new, but you're taking. Well, on, no, he doesn't say that. He doesn't. <laughs> but but he says that <laughs> if you fear. Yeah, if, if that, that you will not be, be able to deal justly with with um, with them, then you, then then one is is um, best. Uh, then only one, and this will be closer to uh, basically couple. Um, so yeah, but but if one is best for you, if you but knew that's actually not in the Arabic. What Allah is saying is that um, you know he he gives the instruction: marry two, three, or four. Mm -hmm. But if you fear that you are not going to be able to be able to be just then only one. So he gives the, the actual grammar. I find it very profound. This is something when I was researching it, and I, alhamdulillah, Allah blessed me to study Arabic and Quran, mm -hmm. is that it's very similar. Like I gave someone a statement. I said, if we want to use logic, let's, let's look at it like this. Let's say I said to you, um, give me 20 30 or $40. But if you fear that's going to be too much for you, right. then give me only 10 because that way you'll, it'll be easy for you to pay me back. No one in their logical mm. mind is saying, oh, she's saying she prefers 10. No, we're saying that 20, 30, or 40, but if you fear, mm -hmm. if there's something within you that you genuinely fear inside of your own heart, then, then only 10. But when it comes to marriage, our brain shuts off because we need to believe that one is best for us. We need to believe that monogamy is the norm, where marriage is actually the norm. And whatever that marriage looks like for each individual is what's right. It, in reality, when you look at the, 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 the tafsir of the Qur'an, when you look at the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, there is no norm except what is best for the individuals involved. And we like to, like a lot of the scholars today, they, they do a lot of, they're very dishonest. And so they'll take things like, oh, the orphans, and which actually, again, if you study the history of Islam and you study the, 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 the truth of what was happening there, what, the, what was actually being talked about was that there were these, like during that time, men were taking care of orphans, you know. Right. And when they got of age, sometimes they would take their wealth. You know, they would marry them so they can also take their wealth. And so Allah is basically telling them, like, it, you know, and by the way, if they were taking care of orphans, polygamy was irrelevant. They could have married several orphans. Mm -hmm. um, so Allah is saying, basically, again, the, the goal of this ayah is about being just to make sure that women's needs are met. So Allah is saying to the men, if you fear that you're not going to be able to deal justly with the orphans, meaning that your heart is not really inclined toward taking care of them and being a true husband to them because you want to just take over their wealth, then, then marry the, the, the women who are not orphans. And then that's the ayah where Allah made two, three, or four, because polygamy was already normal in, right. in, in the world, mm -hmm. and he limited it to four. And then in keeping in mind that there are going to be some men 
who this is not necessarily the norm, but it's, there are going to be some men who are not going to be able to deal justly, even with just two, three, or four, even after he cut it off. He's saying for you, if you recognize within yourself that inability, then you need to stick to only one, and, it's, and that would be best for that man, not for the ummah. And so um, I think that, you know, and this was something that I had to come to terms with because, you know, and then also I want to address the issue of people haven't seen good in polygamy. I think that that's absolutely true, but the, we see with our hearts, not with our eyes. And one of the things that I, 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 I say is that I find that very interesting because that is the same argument that we can make for white people who haven't seen good with black people. But we, we are a religion of justice and faith. Not a, not a religion of prove it to me. Prove it to me is the ideology of the atheist, you know. Hmm. And one of the things that I wrote in, in, in my journal was, was the concept I said that Allah protects us from the burden, or he relieves us of the burden of perception through the obligation of submission. For the believer, it is sufficient that something is allowed by Allah. I believe in Allah. Like Allah says in the Quran, we hear and we obey. Right. So for the believer, there is no true differentiation between monogamy and polygamy, except in what you yourself and your family have decided that you can or will not deal with, because everyone has the right to, to that. The problem is, is that if we put the burden on people to kind of prove that they deserve it, it's very similar to the ideology of the white privilege. This is why I use the marriage privilege. Mm -hmm. You need to prove to me, black people, that you deserve to be on the earth. You need to prove to me that you have a right to, to live. And that is opposite of justice. You know, the law says he gave us, you know, he, these, we are human beings on this earth, and everyone has the right to free choice, whether mm -hmm. you see or understand or not, because guess what? He's, he speaks, and he speaks the truth. Uh, I first have to say uh, thank you, alhamdulillah, so much for that um, that explanation. Um, yeah, just thank you. <laughs> I, I, I love what I do. Um, but I, I go back to the idea of, uh, you know, storytelling being such a powerful, uh, a powerful force in shaping opinions. So the, the narrative, uh, if there have been horror stories told uh, and though those are uh, perpetuated, um, to the point where people have, they've developed opinions and biases, um, then recognizing that, I, that's why I say I think it's, it's important to have uh, balance in, in, the, in the narratives that are, that are shared. So, and, and that's not something that I, I personally, I don't really see many narratives uh, that fit that. I agree. I think that, and I think that what's happening, and even from my own personal experiences and, 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 and interactions with polygynous families, there are, I personally know of way more good stories than bad stories. And I think the reason that I know of them is, number one, that my heart is open to, to seeing the beauty and polygyny in, it, in the first place so people feel safe right. to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. But I think, like, uh, to, in terms of that, I will say this. Um, when you're dealing with a heart, it's kind of like if you, like, Dealing with people who already dislike polygyny, you can't really work with that because their heart is not open. And in my book, I have a book called Even If, mm -hmm. where I give different reflections from my journal and what I what I I wrote about this topic. And and I ha and I say we need to hear more good stories. Mm -hmm. No, we need to fear a law with our tongues and our behavior. Sharing, quote, good stories about polygyny to anti-polygyny Muslims is like sharing, quote, good stories about black people at a KKK rally. There is no point. They don't want to hear the good, and any good they do hear will be just portrayed as some bizarre exception. Right. Or they'll just twist it to make it bad. It is their hearts that need rectifying, not their ears. And that's my position on the good stories about polygyny. Alhamdulillah. Very, very good point. Very good point. Um, we have come to the end of our time, <laughs> and I just have to say thank you again. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Um, would you let the Radio Islam family know how they can keep up with you? You can go to UZAuthor, that's my issues like Umzakia, UZAuthor.com, and you'll find me um, online with uh, Twitter and in Instagram at UZAuthor. And my Facebook page will be um, Umzakia um, page, but you know you can just search for me. But anyway, the most direct route is just uzauthor.com. Okay, alhamdulillah. We thank you again. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. Yes, ma'am. All right, Radio Sound family. That was Umzakia.
we have, like I said, we've come to the end of a, another program. Hope that you have found uh, this beneficial. And we want to thank our engineers now over at WCEV. Thank you very much for making sure we come through loud and clear. We thank our engineer and studio, the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host and producer Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs, are not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. So with that, we're going to leave you now as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.